Welcome to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Batchelor, and Randy Janda. Of course, we call the Canuck games right here on your official home of the Canucks. And Randy, recording the show slash podcast this week in a familiar setting for us. We're at the Jim Robson broadcast gondola inside Rogers Arena. I wouldn't classify us as liars, but normally we're in a studio or we're in a, some sort of studio setting. Today we're in the booth. We're overlooking Rogers Arena ice, so we're not lying tonight. Uh, we are in the booth. And we're coming to you on Friday afternoon after the Canucks practice following their 2-0 home ice win over the Minnesota Wild on Thursday, and we're going to get into a lot of topics. Pew Suter returned to practice today. That was the big headline, and we'll discuss the potential impact that he could have if and when he's able to get back into the lineup. Also want to talk about Connor Garland. Rick Tockett had some interesting comments about Garland following the team's practice on Friday, but let's start by looking back at the game against the Minnesota Wild on Thursday night. It ends up being a nice win for the Canucks, a shutout for Casey DeSmith, the 10th of his NHL career, but it didn't necessarily start that way, and this was a team that kind of had to survive the first period. That's right, the first about 15 minutes of the game. They went 13 minutes and 18 seconds without a shot on goal. Uh, that told you where the puck was, and it was in Vancouver's end, so you know, not the cleanest of puck movement out of their own zone. They couldn't get out of their own zone. That was a big issue, and this is where, you know, Casey DeSmith came up huge. You mentioned the shutout, but Batch, looking at the way he played in that game, just protecting the the lower portion of the net, Joel Erickson had three or four opportunities early in that game. Uh, Minnesota was trying to have those wraparounds or just jam it through. A couple of greasy attempts at, at goal, but Casey DeSmith was solid, and that kind of got the Canucks going a little bit at the end of the first period, and then the second period, they hit the ground running, but... Credit to the goaltender and credit to the Canucks for the most part, even though they gave up some stuff around the blue paint. The middle of the ice, even during those 15 minutes, they protected it pretty well. Yeah, they did. And, you know, I think the Miller line in particular deserves a lot of credit with Hoaglander and Besser not just for weathering the storm in that first period, but really limiting the top line of the wild. And, you know, I, we talked about it last night on the broadcast. Uh, Matt Zuccarello came into the game on a 10-game point streak. Both Marco Rossi and Kirill Kaprizov were on three-game point streak. So that was a line that had been playing confidently, had been playing confidently under new head coach John Hines. And they didn't really get a sniff other than a couple of those wraparound looks in the first period. Yeah, and that was one of the areas that I think when you start looking at the defensive play in – the puck movement was a problem early in that game. So you got to separate the inability to get the puck out of your own zone cleanly. Too many resets by the Canucks defensemen where they're peeling back, trying to find a little bit more time. What happens is you slow down the game. 15 minutes to start that game, that's what happened. But what didn't happen was even though they were in their own zone, it was all perimeter. And if you're going to be playing a lot of defense, that's the way to play it. Push everything to the outsides and even a couple of those moments that they did have opportunities, Erickson Eck, I mentioned, uh, it was the goaltender saw it coming. He knew where the puck was. There wasn't any backdoor plays, and that's important for this team where against New Jersey, there were breakdowns. There were you know chances in transition against Minnesota, especially in that first 15 minutes where they looked, you know, out of the over 60 minutes of hockey played, uh, they looked poorest in those 15 minutes, but 
No transition chances, no backdoor plays, which is a positive for this team. And then they got some timely scoring. First of all, from Niels Hoaglander in the final two minutes of the first period. And then they get a goal early in the third period from Teddy Bluger. And uh, we've talked a lot about that line and how well they've played and how reliable they've been as a pretty consistent third line with Joshua and Garland and Bluger there in the middle now because Suter's been out of the lineup, but Suter was there before. And, you know, a game where maybe you don't play your best, you certainly don't play your best in the first period, but you stick to your structure, you wait for your chances, and then you're opportunistic at key moments in the game. That's what we talk about when we look at good teams that find ways to win when they don't have their best performance or find ways to win when they're playing tired or something like that. And, uh, you know, the Canucks will need to string together a few more of these kinds of performances because, you know, you look at at the recent stretch here and they've gone win one, lose one, win one, lose one, win one, lose one. So if you want to try and string some wins together, you're going to need to find performances like that where you still gut it out and get the win when you're not playing playing to your A level and your top players aren't contributing too because that's the other factor and you know our our good buddy Dan Riccio had this tweet last night that was the first win the Canucks had this year where Pedersen Hughes and Miller all didn't have a point yeah and that's impressive especially when you're able to limit the other team to do what they're doing so the players are maybe not putting up points but they're putting in work the other way and you mentioned JT Miller line I thought Elias Pedersen as well in the neutral zone especially in that third period the second period he was starting to make an impact on that two-way game. But we talked to Brock Besser after the game here in, uh, on the post-game show on Sportsnet 650, and one of the things he mentioned was, you know, that play on that goal that Niels Hoaglander scored, he makes the pass. It's a great pass, you know, keeping an eye out on Niels Hoaglander and that he's got the green light to go there. But the player right before that was Tyler Myers to break up, you know, a chance developing maybe in the middle of the ice. Good defensive play leads to Brock Besser making a, a quick decision, which is a very important for this coaching staff. And then after that, it starts with the goal scoring. So good offense, you know, offense coming from good defense. That's something that is really important to this coaching staff. And even though they go 15 minutes of playing, you know, not great hockey, but that one moment in the game where you have an opportunity, you take it. And that's where I think that ability to reset, call it maturity, those are things that they can look internally and say, hey, this standard that we played in the first 15 minutes wasn't good enough, but we can check ourselves. And that's something that Rick Talkett has mentioned as well, where sometimes he doesn't have to say anything. The players understand the standard is higher this year. And that was an example where, Batch, in that game, you could see something kind of clicked with about four or five minutes to go where they started to turn the tide on them by themselves. And then the second period comes around. They're ready to go. You have a discussion in the admission. You talk about how that first period wasn't good enough. You're fortunate to be ahead and something clicked, and the rest of the night, they were a very, very solid team. And they were able to establish their forecheck, which yep. I think is a crucial thing for them when they've had success this year is they've got in on the forecheck, they've taken time and space away from the other team, and when you're the team that dictates that way, that you want to play, then you're not the team that's dealing with a heavy forecheck from the other group. You're not the team that's getting pushed back in your own zone, which is kind of what we saw from them against the Devils earlier in the week. And it's what Talkit talks about when he talks about, you know, playing straight ahead and meeting pressure with pressure. And you could see really uh, the Hoaglander goal kind of was the turning point where after that, 
they got back to their game. They got back to what they needed to do. And it's interesting you talk about, you know, Besser mentioning the Myers play on that goal. While you guys were talking to him on the postgame show, I was down in the dressing room chatting with Niels Hoaglander, who wanted to give a ton of credit for Nikita Zadorov's center mm-hmm. lane drive up yep. in the rush, too, that helped create it. So it shows that, um, you know, sometimes it's a forward making a good defensive play. Sometimes it's a defenseman reading when to get up in the rush and play a factor, too. And it's when this team is playing together cohesively as a five-man unit that they have the most success. Uh, that was a solid team goal, and we mentioned it during the call as well during the game. But you mentioned the Bluger line and that 2 nothing goal, and I thought in the second period is when you saw them focus on the Goligoski-Merrill pairing, where Goligoski had trouble with the forecheck from that line specifically, whether it was Dakota Joshua coming in as the F1. We saw Teddy Bluger come in there as well. Um, just moments throughout the game where they were not comfortable, and it started in the second period. So I really love that game that that line had, just essentially saying, all right, we see our matchup, and we're going to take advantage because these guys can't handle the heat when we bring it. And you know what that reminds me of is they used that same line to attack Justin Schultz in Seattle Correct, a few yep. weeks ago. Yep. And uh, Teddy Bluger's first goal as a Canuck came on a breakaway in that game, if I'm not mistaken, where yep. they they took advantage of the fact that Schultz you know, couldn't get back to the puck or wasn't the most mobile defenseman. And we saw them flipping pucks into areas where Schultz would be the guy to go back to get them. And then their four checkers, whether it was Bluger, I think Joshua had a breakaway in that game right before that, if I'm not mistaken, too. It's a couple of weeks ago now. Yep. But um, but they, they noticed that their speed on that line in particular could expose defensemen that maybe aren't the most mobile. And we saw that with Schultz in Seattle. And I thought we saw that with that pairing last night against the Wild, too. There's a lot of discussion about that line because Connor Garland's on it and when you're making a certain amount of money you have expectations of production but when you look at that line it's a really unique combination of players Garland is a playmaker we've seen him you know with the backhand sauce he, he can make those plays and is there an expect- expectation that he scores more yeah based on his Arizona days per- perhaps but on this line he strikes me as the playmaker Teddy Bluger is cerebral he's a guy that plays the angles. He's a guy that is so intelligent on the ice that he kind of knows where to be at the right time. So even though Pew Suter is the player that we all assumed that would be in that spot, Bluger is that cerebral kind of player that is kind of the the brains on that line. And Dakota Joshua, smart player. He's got a combination of goal scoring. We've seen some playmaking from him, and he brings that physicality which Rick Tockett loves, and that's why Rick Tockett has maybe given him some tough love to start off this year. So a, a great combination of very different players on that line, and when they're going, that's what they look like. Like against Minnesota, it was a little bit of everything where, you know, Connor Garland, second period and on, was, was very effective in winning puck battles, being engaged, drawing penalties. And I think that uniqueness of that line, they might not give you necessarily points every single game, but they do help win battles, and keep the puck in the opposition end, which is so important, and starts with the forecheck, as you mentioned. Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda with you here on In the Booth, from the booth at Rogers Arena. We're recording the show in the Jim Robson broadcast gondola this week, so that's why you can hear the Zamboni down on the ice uh, making its turns in the background. And I want to focus on Garland in particular here, Randy, because Rick Tockett spoke about him after practice on Friday, and, you know, you're right making the money that he's making, you know, with the role that he's got on the team, there is an expectation of a little bit more offense. And it hasn't necessarily been there 
this season for Connor Garland. He's shooting 3.5%, though. Nine points in 27 games. A 3.5% shooting percentage says to me that, okay, maybe this is a guy that isn't getting to some of those areas that he was scoring in in past years as much. But what it tells me more than anything is he's having horrendous luck this season. And, you know, with that line playing so well, I'm sure for many fans they're saying, how is Garland not producing more? And I'm sure Garland wants to, you know, contribute more offensively to this group too. But at the same time, if he continues to get opportunities, if that line continues to play well, and this is kind of what Tockett was preaching after practice, if he continues to do the things that he needs to do to be successful on that line and for this team to be successful and get wins, eventually the pucks are going to start going in for him. Yeah, and that's a part of it. No question where, you know, luck is not on his side in terms of goal scoring. But I remember talking to Connor Garland. He was on one of our shows uh, when kind of doing a, a season wrap interview with him. And... He was asked about his season, his first season in Vancouver. It wasn't terrible, but he said it was terrible. And that was uh, the high standard that he has for himself. And I think, you know, Rick Tockett in that conversation after practice talked about how sometimes the player can get frustrated themselves where they're saying, hey, you know, I get all these opportunities. Uh, the standard kind of changes. You're, if you're playing in the top six in Arizona or even in Vancouver, the expectation is you're going you're gonna to get those goals and you want to earn that money in that way. But in a third-line role, you're not going to get that chance. Uh, as much. So when I start looking at Connor Garland, what he's able to do is top five in shots on goal in the Vancouver Canucks. He's ahead of Philip Ronick, who gets a lot of ice time, and just behind Elias Pettersson. Now, the question I have with Connor Garland is I like the way he plays the game, but not all of those shots are equal in the sense that some of them are not exactly the highest degree of difficulty. Low is, percentage, yeah. Low percentage. Is he the most efficient with his shooting? And I don't think he is. And a classic example of that is on the left wing last night. He's coming down. Quinn Hughes is next to him. And he kind of goes on along the same side as Quinn Hughes. And he takes a low percentage shot from the left-hand side where maybe Hughes coming down the middle would have been a better option. But that's an example of, yes, you're getting the shots, but is that the smartest use of the puck at that moment? So part of it is you want to be scoring goals, but are you potentially bypassing another decision that might be better for a team result in that moment? So I'm not worried about the shot tools. I think if... He can embrace that role as a playmaker. If you get eight goals this season, but your assist totals are high and you're making everybody around you better, I'm okay with that. Yeah, and on a play like that, I can understand a shot if you're shooting for a rebound off the pad, Yeah, which is something that you know maybe he was trying to do on that sequence. You never know. But this talk kind of alluded to this as well, that uh, when Garland sort of squeezes the stick and is pressing for offense, that's when he gets away from the things in his game that allow him to create some of that offense. And, um, you know, talk at reference sort of, you know, if he chases a puck behind the net rather than finding a soft area in front, then if the puck comes out front, guess what? He's not there. He's behind the net. And, and that limits his ability to produce offense. But to be honest with the way this team has been playing this year, and I'm sure from an individual perspective, Garland wants to be putting up points, but they've been winning games, you know, maybe not with the same regularity over the last 10 or 15 games that they were at the start of the year, but Garland has found a role on this team. He's found a consistent spot in the lineup. He's been on that third line with Joshua and Bluger pretty much exclusively, other than when it was Suter early in the season. And a couple times in games recently, Tockett has pulled out the Travis Green line blender, as we always like to joke about, uh, trying to get something out of this group. But 
this might be the first time as a Canuck that I can say Connor Garland has a set spot in the lineup, that you know what his role is, that you know where he's going to line up on a nightly basis, whereas in past years, sometimes he was on the first line, sometimes he was on the third or fourth line, and oftentimes it was moving from game to game and sometimes from shift to shift with the way this team wasn't having success. So there is something to be said for finding a role for a player, having them execute that role well, and with the way this team has played and the way they've been able to win games, Garland doesn't need to be a 50-point guy for them to have success. That said, you still want more offense from your bottom six, and you're going to take it wherever you can get it. But I'm not sitting here losing sleep over the fact that Connor Garland isn't producing. Yeah, he's currently projected to get 27 points this year, which is low for him, and I can understand the frustration. It's probably low for a lot of Canucks fans out there. But one thing he does have clarity, to your point, is role. What are you supposed to do in this lineup? You're supposed to drive that third line. You're supposed to be a key playmaker on it. The other thing I would say is, at the time of acquisition, the expectations were sky high. When you're making that much money, you're expected to be a staple in the top six. A couple of things have happened since then. New coach, a couple of new coaches, new management team, and a different style of play. We've talked about how this organization now prefers the straight line burners. And those are guys on the wings that are just going full speed ahead, aggressive on the forecheck. You know, if they have size, great. Rick Tockett's mentioned himself. On the top two lines, that's how we think for sure. You want to do that in the fourth line. But Garland's role is pretty unique. Doesn't mind having a player that has the puck a little bit more on his stick on that line with Bluger or Suter and, uh, and Dakota Joshua. So it is very unique to what the Canucks have across their lineup, but this is a very unique role for him. So I think the situation has changed. When Jim Benning and co. brought him in, they probably had a different style of play in mind. That has changed, and as a result how much we can expect from Connor Garland has also changed because he's not a top six player with this team. On that team, he was. And we talk about him finding a role now. Let's transition to talk about a guy that is trying to find a role or trying to find where he's going to stick on this roster under Rick Tockett, and that's Andre Kuzmenko, who the head coach was very critical of earlier in the week coming off the game against New Jersey, said that he doesn't want to answer questions about him or is getting tired of answering questions about him and that he needs to get in on the forecheck. And in the game against the Wild, Kuzmenko found himself on the fourth line uh, after only getting three shifts in the third period against the New Jersey Devils. Uh, Kuzmenko was on a regular line at practice on Friday, but stayed out late after the practice ended, was doing some work and and talking with Sergei Gonchar. So it'll be interesting to see what the future holds for Kuzmenko in the short term in terms of where he is in the lineup on Saturday, whether he is in the lineup on Saturday. But in the bigger picture, you know, this is a head coach that has a certain way he wants his team to play. And right now, Andre Kuzmenko is not fitting in to that style of play, to the the hallmarks or the staples or whatever you want to call them that Rick Tockett always bangs the drum about. And as a result, we've seen him demoted down the lineup now. Obviously, his production's been down this season. We've even seen him healthy scratched a couple of times, and it does make you wonder where things are trending for coach and player in this situation. Yeah, and it comes down to trust. Can you play that style that the coach wants to your point? But, you know, I kind of equate this to learning a language when you're a kid versus when you're a little bit older. Yeah. It's a lot easier to hear when you're a kid because you can kind of, you know, you're a, you're more of a sponge and you can adjust your ways as a child and it just it sticks so much more as mm-hmm. you're and I you're learning everything about the world exactly. when you're a kid you're in the mode where you're learning everything and you have a little one so you understand exactly that. and I'm sure yeah. our listeners do too once you get into your 20s and your 30s 
it's a lot more difficult because you're set in your ways. You think yep. you've figured everything out. Exactly. And this is where the North American style of game, of when you're making that switch from 26 and 27 versus 18, 19, 20, this is a difference here where, you know, I look at players like Ivan Barbashev is a player that's been talked about a lot over the last two years here in Vancouver as well. He played in the Quebec Major Junior League. Gabriel Landeskog, another player that made the switch from Europe, played in his teens here. There are players that have made it later on and have been successful, but it requires that much more work. There's a steeper learning curve, and it is something that is challenging. And, you know, you mentioned him working with Sergey Gonchar here uh, at Rogers Arena, the extra work that he's putting in. He's going to require that because the style that he came into the league, scoring 39 goals, it was a very different style. It was one that he was in and around the net, which I'm seeing less of this year, yeah. and I want to see more of that. But this is a coach now that says, hey, I need you to forecheck. I need you to bring speed. I need you to be in the right spot because you can put in 39 goals on a team that doesn't make the playoffs, but I want to make the playoffs with this team. So if you score 25, but you're playing the right way, I'm okay with that. And winning hockey versus you know putting up stats hockey is different. And that's where Kuzmenko at this point in his career, it's something that's really tough to learn, but you have to do it because you know this is, this is the NHL right now. And I'll give you an example. Rick Tockett coached Phil Kessel in Pittsburgh. Yeah. What was the MO on Phil Kessel before he got to Pittsburgh? It was, talented player, can you win with this guy? Yeah. And he changed his game to fit in with the Evgeny Malkins and play a hard-nosed game with Nick Benino and Carl Hagelin on that third line. Sure, he wasn't the hard-nosed player, but was he skating hard? Yes, he was. Was he meshing with a line? Absolutely, he was. So it's not impossible to get a player to think that way, but what we saw with Phil Kessel in Pittsburgh, and even Arizona to a certain degree didn't work out so well there, that's kind of what Rick Tockett's trying to do here with Andre Kuzmenko. It is, and it was interesting because we heard Tockett talk about Kuzmenko's game, and in particular, you know, if he's F1, he's got to be F1, was sort of the the buzz quote that I took away from that, which, you know, if you're not super in tune with systems in hockey, means if you're the guy that's in on the forecheck first, get in there quickly, pressure the defenseman, try and turn the puck over. And I was thinking about that as we were calling the game, last night against Minnesota and you know oftentimes you know our roles are different and we've talked about this on the show earlier where I'm watching the puck I'm calling the game and you're looking for the things away Mm -hmm. from the play or some of the other you know nuances within the game but there was one sequence where a puck got dumped into the Minnesota zone and Kuzmenko was very clearly F1 like he was deepest forward in the zone he would have been able to get to that puck quicker and Neil Zoman beat him and got in and was F1. And this is just one little snippet in the game that jumped out in my mind and something I noticed as we were calling the game last night. And you sort of look at that and you go, oh, that's what Tockett's talking about, where, you know, he he's not proactive getting in on the forecheck. And part of that, I'm sure, is because when you play in Europe in the KHL and on the bigger ice, you can sleep a little bit. You can hide in the weeds. Yep. It's not quite as much of an aggressive forechecking game because the ice is so big that if you forecheck and you get caught behind the opposing team's net, you're way behind the play if the puck goes the other way. But it's very different in the NHL. It's a fast pace. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to be on it all the time. And it's clear that that's not something that Kuzmenko is used to. And at this point, I'll even go as far as to say it's not something that he's capable of doing. And so then the question becomes, you know, how should Rick Tockett manage this? And is this a player that he can change to turn into a four-checker? Or should be he 
be trying to adapt the game plan around Kuzmenko because he is a skilled offensive player. And I'm not arguing this either way. I've just seen a lot of our listeners and people commenting on social media saying he's such a skilled offensive player. He scored so much last year. You got to find a way to get that out of him, even if he's not the best on the forecheck or even if he doesn't always play to the staples. And you do wonder if there has to be some level of compromise there to try and get the best out of Kuzmenko, even if he's not going to be the best four checker on every shift. Well, here's the issue, though. If you're playing him in the top six, which you have to because he's got the offensive skill, sure, in the meantime right now he's playing in the the fourth line, but this is not the long-term plan. It shouldn't be, and I imagine when you have a 39-goal scorer, you want to push him up the lineup. You're sending a message right now. You're trying to correct some ways in their game. But with Elias Pettersson... Your job, and his job and Mikheyev's job, is in a lot of ways to get Elias Pettersson the puck. That's what worked well last year in the sense that Pettersson was making it happen, and Kuzmenko benefited, but he put in some hard work himself. He was going to those dirty areas, but you got to get the puck first. You have to be a better possession team, and what's the way to create possession? Playing aggressive in that, uh, in, on the forecheck and being good in the neutral zone. And defensemen can help with that. They can pinch up and they can dive into the zone, as we've seen the Canucks do really well. And that Teddy Bluger goal is a classic example, where Noah Juleson plays alongside Dakota Joshua. They work together to, to keep the puck in the zone, and that benefits them in a goal. But it's a team effort where you need Kuzmenko to buy into that role, because that's the way the team wants to play. As Tockett always says, you got to participate. Exactly, and that's where it's on Andre Kuzmenko to change that. And I know then, starting off, I mentioned the language you know, example. It's tough when you're older, but it's still doable, and this is going to be something that I think there's going to be a couple of things to read between the lines when Rick Tockett has been talking about playing uh, tired, you know, not extending shifts. And Kuzmenko has had a, had a, a little bit of an issue with both of those things. He came into this season better conditioned, but if you start keeping an eye on sometimes his shift lengths, not exactly disciplined in that regard. And to your point about the forecheck, that's the way that he's going to have to play here because Elias Pettersson on that line is the most skilled player. The puck on his stick... It needs to be there. He can make things happen. You're complimentary to that, but you got to give him the puck. And Ilya Mikheyev and Andre Kuzmenko are going to have to work together when they're back on the top line to do that. Right now, you got to show that further down and work with Niels Oman, show some good habits, uh, simplify the game. Maybe don't worry about production as much. But Batch, that's the road here because otherwise, I don't know if you can have a third or fourth line that has a that doesn't play that way. You need to bring that hard-nosed game to a certain extent. Well, and that's another thing that Talkett always talks about is setting your line mates or your teammates up for success. And that's why he always harps on disciplined line changes and not changing in a bad spot or staying out there too long and and getting hemmed in and and you know making it hard on yourself and your line mates if you ice the puck and you're caught out there and all of these things. That applies to the forecheck, too, because guess what? If Andre Kuzmenko is there, but he doesn't get in and, and isn't F1 on the forecheck, then that means Niels Oman's got to put more work to get in there yep. and pressure the puck. And, you know, that's that's part of this, too, is that it's not just Kuzmenko individually. It's how he fits in as a part of the team. And if he's a guy that's dragging his teammates down, for lack of a better term, or making them put in more work because he's not willing to get to that spot, then that's not something that's going to be sustainable. That's the well-oiled machine aspect of it. Every part's got to do its job, and you know, otherwise you're disjointed, right? We can all relate to that school project in high school where one person wouldn't put in the work and you get the, the, you know, the group grade. Sure, even if you win a game, you're saying, hey, did you pull your weight? And I think with Kuzmenko, the ice time, 12 minutes and 15 seconds, this is a guy I remember, 
heading into this season, we're talking about if he can play 18, 19 minutes a game, that's where you want to be because that means you're trusted. Right now, he's seven minutes shy of that. So work to do, play a certain way. But this is on Andre Kuzmenko. I think in a lot of ways, yeah, Rick Tockett has had moments where he's been very direct. He's also been moments where he's, in a lot of ways, maybe not been as direct as he, he could have been. And he's given Andre Kuzmenko a bit of a note. So at this point, I think it's the player to turn their game around to say, all right, I got to do these very specific things. And, and Batch, it's not going to happen overnight. These are habits you're building. So the runway of Kuzmenko's play, some games are going to be good, some games are going to be bad, but you got to have more good games than bad leading into the months of, I would say, February and March especially. This is In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650 with Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda. Still lots more to come on the other side. We'll answer some listener questions. We'll do our weekly rose ceremony and much more right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda. This week emanating from the booth, the Jim Robson Broadcast Gondola inside Rogers Arena. This show lives as a podcast. You also hear it on Sportsnet 650. So if you missed any part of the show, if you're listening on the radio right now, download the podcast by subscribing to the Canucks Central podcast feed. You get Sat and Reach and their show every weekday. You get every Canucks postgame show with Sat and Bick, and you get in the booth with the two of us weekly as well. We talked a lot about Andre Kuzmenko already on the show. We talked about Connor Garland. We talked about the Canucks' win over the Minnesota Wild. So now let's turn the page to the Carolina Hurricanes coming in on Saturday night. And the Canucks kind of get the Hurricanes at a bad time here, Randy, because they've been struggling of late. We heard the Rod Brindamore bench interview the other day talking about how they were on pace to lose 50 to nothing in that game to the Edmonton Oilers. They followed that up with a loss to the Calgary Flames too. So it's going to be a motivated Hurricanes team looking to come in and get back in the win column on Saturday night. Yeah, and even further back, they lost to the Winnipeg Jets as well. So this is a team that's lost three in a row. And what's really interesting about this team this year is from an offense perspective they still have the same players Sebastian Ajo you go through the list of you know solid defensemen but generally just looking at this team overall you think it's goaltending you think why aren't they playing well their save percentage is amongst the lowest in the NHL but they give up 25 shots per game they should be good that's that's blaming goaltending right not necessarily this is one of the best teams defensively in hockey last year top two This year, they're middle of the pack. So they're giving a lot more backdoor plays. They're giving up more chances in transition. And that's something that they might not give you the quantity, so to speak. The shots on goal might be low. But they are breaking down a lot more. So from an opposition's perspective, especially when you're talking about the top two lines for the Vancouver Canucks or establishing that forecheck, putting them under pressure, this is going to be a really, really, you know, good time to play the Carolina Hurricanes because they're trying to figure out what they are, Batch. And that's why... You know, they're vulnerable. They're going to be desperate. They don't want to lose four in a row. But at the same time, this is a team right now that's trying to find out a little bit about themselves, and they're struggling. They've got the worst team save percentage in the NHL, too. So their goaltenders can be exposed. And I'll be most interested to see how the Canucks come out in the first period on Saturday night because that's kind of been a struggle for them of late. And it's something that we didn't see from them early in the year, but it kind of was a hallmark of their game at times last year and over the past couple of years, not being ready 
to start on time. And they weathered the storm yesterday. You know, we talked about it already. They did a good job making sure they weren't giving up grade-A chances, but the play was in their own end for the large portion of that first period. The Hurricanes have offensive weapons that will make you pay if that happens. On the other side of things, though, if you can come out and you can be the team that's strong out of the gates on a Saturday night on home ice on Hockey Night in Canada and Hockey Night in Canada Punjabi, of course, and, you know, get in on the forecheck and you create chances, you might be able to build an early lead because the goaltending for this team and I would assume by extension the defending has been porous. It's shocking to say that because you look at their defensive pairings, should be up there with the best in the league. Their top five defensemen, when you have Jacob Slavin, Brent Burns, Brady Shea, Brett Pesce, and then your fifth defenseman is Dmitry Orlov. Like, that's depth. And shouts to Jalen Chatfield as well, who's a former Canuck now playing on that team, and fit pretty well. But that was last year's story. This year, they haven't found that fit. So you're right, there's an opportunity there. But one of the things that I'll be looking at in this game is Sebastian Ajo centering the top line. They've got Tara Vine in there and Martin Nechas, who in transition is a problem. He's got speed. He's one of the fastest skaters in the NHL with the puck on his stick. We talk about Jack Hughes. We talk about Connor McDavid. And sure, that's one player. But Seth Jarvis, decent skater as well. If you give this team time, if you give them time to generate speed, and you don't pressure that defense, you don't cause turnovers... There are some danger spots in this lineup, and this is not a game that's all that far removed from the game against Jersey. So if you give speed an opportunity to generate in the neutral zone, they can burn you and they can catch you flat-footed if it's Tyler Myers or Nikita Zadorov. So Batch, even though you know this is a great spot for the Canucks to take advantage of a team that's struggling right now, there are a couple of danger signs there if you don't come out correct and play a strong game to your identity, which is establish that forecheck generating speed through the neutral zone this could still be a very dangerous team and this is going to be an interesting week too because the hurricanes are a team they're not going to be an easy out even though you know there is a pathway to victory there as we talk about the tampa bay lightning come in on tuesday we know the kind of season nikita kucherov's having and then the florida panthers come in on thursday night for roberto luongo ring of honor night which is going to be a great evening inside this building here at rogers arena i'm really looking forward to it oh yeah and the last time i saw roberto luongo was actually during the cup final last year in vegas and being a member of the florida panthers of course he was nervous i believe he was shoveling some potato chips into his bag in the media (laughs) suite there nervously that's on brand and that's on hey yeah he was you know just an excellent individual we got to cover him but it's been cool to Every now and then, you run into him at a rink. Sadine Knight, he was here at Rogers Arena as well. So just seeing that element and what the city of Vancouver means to him, it's going to be the hockey on its own is one thing. Anytime Matthew Kachuk rolls into town, it's always festivities, and it could be an entertaining game. Oliver ekman Larson too. A wheel revenge game. But Roberto Luongo and his up-and-down journey in Vancouver, it's come full circle where people appreciate the goaltender he was. The Vancouver Canucks at one point in time had the best goaltender in the world. Uh, not many teams can say that. Not many fan bases can say that. So Thursday night, that game, I'm excited for that one because I think it's going to be a a moment that this city's waited for a long time, and Roberto has as well, where you know the relationship wasn't smooth, especially with the captaincy and all of that. Now it's a, a moment where it can all be, you know, you can right some wrongs that might have happened in the past, uh, and it'll be a special moment. 
and the team has released some information about that ceremony coming up on Thursday and the special Ring of Honor night. Doors are going to open early at 5.30. There's a bobblehead giveaway for the first 10,000 fans, so if you're coming to the game on Thursday against the Panthers, get here early. You can come in at 5.30. Make sure you get your bobblehead. A pregame ceremony celebrating Luongo's career, featuring tributes by special guests and former teammates. A ceremonial face-off featuring both starting goalies, so we'll get to see Thatcher Demko take a draw. That'll be interesting. Uh, they've also got a special retail collection featuring Luongo bobbleheads, hoodies, t-shirts, pins, hats, and other collectible memorabilia, and numerous special in-game activations celebrating one of the greatest players in franchise history. So it's going to be a lot of fun. If you don't have tickets to come to the rink already, make sure you get yours before Thursday and be a part of it. And I love that. Thatcher Demko in the ceremonial puck drop with probably Sergei Bobrovsky, who is another student of Ian Clark. Roberto Luongo, another student of Ian Clark. So even though you're honoring Roberto Luongo... You're really honoring Ian Clark. Exactly. (laughs) So that's what's coming up in the next week for the Canucks as they conclude this homestand, and then they'll head out on the road starting next weekend. They face the Wild again and go to Chicago to take on the Blackhawks. But it's time to get into some listener questions here, Randeep, as we do every week on In the Booth. We got some good contributions, and let's start with Nate, who writes in on Twitter and says, the Canucks need a top six winger to play with Pedersen. Do you think they should be looking at Gensel if he hits the trade market or free agency? And again, whenever we have these conversations, we have to couch it within the context of cap space. Will they have it? Won't they have it? They're probably going to have a little bit more than we thought next season with the news over the past week that the salary cap is likely to go up about $4 million. So a little bit more wiggle room, but they still have to extend Elias Patterson. They still have to extend Philip Heronik. If they want to keep Nikita Zadorov around, he's going to need a contract. So there isn't going to be a big opportunity for the Canucks to be huge spenders, but because he's a former Pittsburgh Penguin, you've always got to assume that there could be a connection with a guy like Jake Gensel. Of course, UFA at the end of the season, so that's a conversation that you no doubt will be exploring if uh, if there's an opportunity. But that being said, and even though there is going to be an increase in cap space, you've got the Elias Pettersson contract you got to take care of. You've got the Philip Hronick um, contract you have to take care of. So it's a priority. Now the question is, is it a priority through free agency where you're going to pay. I love Jake Gensel as a player at the age of 29. I still think he's got some really good hockey in front of him, but he's also a very key figure on that Pittsburgh Penguins team. And if I'm Sidney Crosby and I've got a couple years left on my NHL contract, at least one more, um, you're probably saying, hey, keep this guy here some in Pittsburgh because if we're trying to win, I need a goal scorer next to me or I need a goal scorer uh, if I'm Evgeny Malkin. So just the way that they break down those lines. Yes, if there's an opportunity, you have to make that call. But Batch, in terms of exploring other options, I do wonder about trade as well. This is something that if you're able to find a player that's a little bit younger, Jake Gensel will be 30 you know, pretty soon, is that what you want to tie yourself to in a long-term contract, right? I'm not trying to be ageist here because I'm well above 30, but the point is... We both are. Exactly. If, if you're trying to set your team up for the future, do you want to be tying yourself to a contract where a player is probably going to be under contract until 36, 37 years of age? If there's a trade option out there, if you can maybe dangle uh, potentially a pick in the offseason, not for this upcoming draft, maybe another one, I would rather look at that because you might have some term and some age on your side. So who those names are, uh, it really depends on how teams look at their builds. And does a, a, you know, a player maybe a little bit younger free up for you, and then you're 
able to get a player that can outperform their contract. And, and that's really important for this team. Yeah, and this kind of ties into Austin's question on Twitter as well. He writes in and says, if you're Alvin and Rutherford, what's on your Christmas list? Well, I would imagine uh, another defenseman, maybe a right shot, maybe named Ethan Bear. We'll see if that comes to fruition or not, because we heard this week from Elliot Friedman that teams are going to watch him skate in Kelowna, and there's a lot of interest. It's not just the Canucks, and some other teams might be able to commit more money, uh, so we'll have to wait and see. But another defenseman, and then, yeah, you know, tying into the Gensel conversation, we can see the holes in the top six, and, you know, Mikheyev and Pedersen and Lafferty have actually worked as a line over the last few games, but that's not a long-term plan. Everybody knows that, and if Kuzmenko continues to have some of his struggles like we've talked about, about, then you would like to have another top six winger. Again, the question for me always comes down to cap space and can you make it work, but um, the closer you get to the deadline, the more flexibility you have to try and get something done. We usually don't think of Christmas presents this way, but I have a a designation for both. There's a a short-term gift and a long-term gift. (laughs) One that you want for now and one that you want to save for later. Call it a GC of sorts, right? Um, The defense, now because you need depth on that right-hand side. And if Ethan Bear is willing to take that trip from Kelowna to Vancouver and and stay with the Vancouver Canucks and show what he can do and ramp up, that's great. I think that's your short-term solution. Long-term, for me, and when I think of a player type, these guys don't roll around very much. They don't come into the hockey. But I think of like a prime TJ Oshie, where are you able to get a player with hard skill, but in and around the net, like that's his area. He's not going to shy away from battles. Is that a Travis Konechny? Is that somebody that I'm not even thinking of? I think that's got to be the long-term wish. That's the long-term Christmas wish you're looking at to say, who's going to be that forward next to Elias Pettersson that is going to absolutely win every single board battle, net front battle that he's engaged in. And that's the long-term wish for me. Another question in from Ryan, good buddy of ours, hosts a, a hockey podcast here in Vancouver, Pucks on Net. Make sure to check them out. He writes in and says, what's going to take more time, Kuzmenko getting out of Tockett's doghouse or the glass repair at Rogers Arena last night, which had you and me working overtime. It was 10-plus minutes, I think, it took them to fix that pane of glass last night. So we were talking about Christine Sinclair. We were talking about the game. We found all sorts of things to fill that time. Yeah, that was something, as a guy that's you've done this as well, hosted a three-hour show, it felt like those five minutes were the longest time of my <laughs> life as well. Um, I'm going to say, and I, I'm that you know me, I'm an optimist by heart, but I think the Kuzmenko discussion is going to take longer because this is something that you're trying to change the identity of a player to a certain extent at the age of 27. That's not easy. That's not easy. That's going to take time. There's habits that have been set over years and years of years of play by different coaches with different mindsets and different you know styles of play that you have to break. That's going to take months. If not years, potentially. Yes. So we'll see how things go with Kuzmenko and Talkit, and I'm sure that'll be a, an ongoing storyline all season long. We've talked about it quite a lot ourselves on this show with Kuzmenko being a healthy scratch for a couple of games a few weeks back. Okay, there is one more listener question I wanted to get to here, Randy. We didn't have time for it on last week's show, and it's Tim who writes in. Uh, a good friend of mine, actually, is an avid Canucks fan who lives in Dallas, Texas, and tunes into our broadcasts all the time. And he sends quite a lengthy email, so I'm not going to you know, read it out word for word, but he wants to talk about divisional realignment in the NHL. And you know, the, the reason that he, he initially brings this up, he says, since the Canucks finally have a geographic rival in the NHL, it makes no sense that they only meet Seattle three times this season. 
uh, and Calgary and Edmonton only met each other three times last year. So he's drawn out this elaborate realignment where you go from four divisions to eight divisions of four teams so that you can play some of those rival teams a lot more often and and you can build some of those rivalries. And I think what he's getting at is kind of what the NHL has tried to get at with the wild card formation in the playoffs. So Uh, It's an interesting concept, and I agree with him in terms of the point that the Canucks need to be playing Seattle more often than three times a year. I just don't know if the NHL is going to do anything about this. I agree to a degree here, but, you know, one thing I will say is that let's look back at what the NHL used to do. Remember when they go heavy on the divisional matchups? That, to me, was overload. It felt like you were watching the same teams over and over again. And the other downside of that is that because the divisional matchups are given such importance that you lose out on some of those East Coast teams coming out. So I don't mind this. To me, this is kind of a happy medium where, you know, you're not manufacturing those divisional rivalries too much. You're getting a nice dose of it. And, Batch, let's be honest. The real rivalries, they really begin in the playoffs. That's where it matters more. So once the Canucks get back to the playoffs, that's when some of these matchups are going to mean that much more. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the way he built out the schedule, like as I said, he went to elaborate degrees. He he drew out all eight divisions. Um, you know, he's got four games against each divisional opponent, two games against teams from the opposing conference like it is right now, uh, three games against teams in the other division in your same conference, and then you have one extra game against your two closest geographic rivals, and that gets you to 82 games on the season. So I guess in this case, the Canucks would play Calgary and Seattle one extra game on top of the four games. So you're you're maxing out at five games for a team in your division. That, that makes sense to me. That feels like, okay, that's a happy medium. But just as I said, I don't know if we'll see the NHL go to this, but it is always interesting to think about and, and think what might be the best way uh, to realign the divisions in the league. And this conversation is always going to evolve, too, because there may be more expansion coming down the road. And what could that mean for this league as well? All right, that's it for questions we're going to take this week. So it's time to get to the Rose Ceremony, Randeep. And, uh, you know, coming off the win over Minnesota, there are lots of players that we could give roses to. I'm going to give mine to Casey DeSmith. I think it's a pretty obvious one, but he picks up a shutout, hadn't played since late November, and talking to him after the game, he's a guy that prides himself on his ability to come into the lineup when he hasn't played in a while, put in the work in practice, and be that guy that can be airdropped in and give you a good game. And that's certainly what we saw from him against the Wild on Thursday. All right, I'm going to use that Pittsburgh pipeline for my rose as well. (laughs) Sam Lafferty, whether this guy plays on the fourth line, the third line, or the top line with Elias Pettersson, he's able to produce. He's able to score goals. In the last three games, he's got two goals, one assist. And this is a player... When you're talking about predictable hockey, can you hit the forecheck? Can you be a a board battle winner? Yes, he can. And having that flexibility, I'm not saying he's going to stay on the top line, but knowing what you can get from a player is really important for a coach, and Lafferty's bringing it also in the top six. 
Uh, so there is the rose ceremony. And we do also have to talk about Pew Suter, which we said we were going to discuss and then kind of got sidetracked to talk Lots about to talk other about things. That. But uh, there isn't a ton of news on Pew Suter. He was back on the ice of practice today for the first time in a long time. Rick Tockett said afterwards he thinks he's been skating on his own for about six or seven days. So uh, they're happy to have him back at practice. Nobody wanted to commit to a firm timeline talk it just sort of said you know he's close we don't know if he's going to be an option right away and Suter didn't skate on a line so there's no indication that he could be ready to go into the lineup against the Hurricanes but encouraging to get Pew Suter back at practice at the very least and we'll see if this time next week we're talking about him having played a game he balances out the lineup just allowing Bluger to drop down a little bit four goals this year and one of the more important aspects eats 15 minutes of ice time which is important minutes and the highest face-off percentage shorthanded on the team, 53%. That matters. Remember, we talked about struggles on the PK. Yeah. You're not winning that first face-off, you're up against it, right? So that's going to be an area that when he does come back, he's going to help out on that front. He certainly will, so we'll see what his timeline is. Uh, before we get out of here, Randy, Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi tomorrow. What do you guys have on tap? That's right. We've got Buffalo, Montreal tomorrow. I'm going to actually sit down with uh, a Brad May, former Vancouver Canuck, to talk about his experience playing in Buffalo, but also his Vancouver Canuck experience. And we got Carolina, Vancouver, which leads me to, in his rookie season, Brad fought Rick Tockett four times. Rick Tockett was his idol, so I want to talk a little bit about that and how those fights went down so stay on top of that with uh, obviously our broadcast on Omni Television but social media and Hockey Night Punjabi as well. Meanwhile, I will have the call of the game, the Canucks and the Hurricanes from Rogers Arena with Brett Festerling stepping into that seat in place of you while you're on Hockey Night in Canada Punjabi. So make sure to join us on Saturday night, 6 o'clock pregame, 7 o'clock puck drop, the Canucks and the Canes from Rogers Arena. Thanks for joining us again this week on In the Booth. If you missed any part of the program, download the podcast on the Canucks Central feed, and we'll talk to you again next week right here on Sportsnet 650.